0: from the Australian Institute of International Affairs. It's safe harbor. I'm Elliot Goodyear.
1: Let the international communities
0: to realize that Hong Kong people will not keep silence. I began working on this series to create an audio timeline that strung all the events of the 2019 Hong Kong protests together. I tried for a while, but there was a gap I just couldn't get over. A gap in the reporting and a gap in the information available. There are a lot of headlines and not a lot of stories, personal narratives that would answer one simple question. What did it feel like to be there as a protester during one of the biggest movements of our time? At the time of recording, most protesters are in hiding or in prison. A new law passed in mid-2020 meant even talking to me, a journalist, a foreign journalist, could be seen as foreign collusion and the very act of recording those individual narratives I felt were missing. Well, those protesters could go to prison for life just for telling me their story. But to them, it matters so much, they've done it anyway. This is a series called Safe Harbor, stories from behind the front line. Act 1. The murder. You might logically think that the 2019 Hong Kong protest began in 2019 with a protest, but that's not exactly true. It started instead with the disappearance of a girl in 2018, a year before the protest began.
2: And now, here's a closer look at Chan Tong Kai's murder case. The 20 year old Hong Kong resident killed his girlfriend in Taiwan last year, but evaded arrest.
0: That's right. The legal bomb that would set in motion a million people demonstrating in the streets of Hong Kong. Lives lost, blindings, tear gas, a broken economy. It started with the confession of a homicide.
2: I was only a girl.
0: I had only one daughter whom I loved most dearly, my precious daughter. These words in Cantonese are from an interview with the South China Morning Post. Speaking is the mother of Poon Huai Wing, begging for justice. Poon was on holiday in Taiwan, so two hours east of Hong Kong by plane, with her boyfriend Chan Tong Kai. And the thing is, If Poon had gone missing in Hong Kong, and not in Taiwan, this whole movement may never have happened. So here are the facts of the case. In grainy CCTV footage, Poon and Chan can be seen entering the Purple Garden Hotel in Taipei one evening. And in the morning, Chan exits alone, hauling a bright pink suitcase on wheels. According to Chan's confession, and remember, we only have his side of the story, Chan said Poon was pregnant, but she told him it was the child of her ex-boyfriend. And they had this huge fight. He says he smashed Poon's head against the wall and strangled her from behind. He then folded her body into the suitcase, the bright pink suitcase, and went to sleep. In the morning, he took a train to the outskirts of Taipei and dumped Poon's body in a thicket of bushes. He withdrew some cash from her credit card, paid off his own debts, and caught the 11.22 evening flight back to Hong
2: Kong.
0: <sighs> Poon's mother tells of how she suffers from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, haunted by the image of her daughter in a suitcase. And it's made all the worse because... Chan never actually stood trial for murder. When he confessed, he was in a Hong Kong police station. Unless he were to give himself over to Taiwanese police, he would never have to stand trial for murder. And I'll get to why in a second. So the Hong Kong police try to slap as many charges as they can on Chan. Theft, handling stolen goods, for the cash that he took from Poon's accounts after the murder to pay off his credit card debts. All these get upgraded to four counts of money laundering. And in the end, Chan receives a 29 month jail sentence. So we have a murderer and we have no justice. So why couldn't he face up to his crimes? Well, I've enlisted the Hong Kong chief executive, Kerry Lam herself, to help explain.
2: There is. Sort of a very difficult area to understand why Hong Kong cannot have any mutual legal assistance on criminal matters without closest neighbours. That is the mainland of China, Taiwan and Macau.
0: So she's not actually talking to me personally, but she's explaining something that took me a while to wrap my head around. She's saying there is no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and its neighbours, which leads to our Chan murder problem.
2: So we have to sort of plug that loophole and rectify that deficiency for the long-term benefit of Hong Kong because nobody wants Hong Kong to be a fugitive offender's haven.
0: Plug the loophole. Quell this offender's haven. She's saying if we don't change the law, Hong Kong could be crawling with murderers like Chan who kill overseas and hide out back home. But I'm not sure if you noticed, because she sort of slipped it in there, the treaty would also extend to China. So this bill, it's called the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance Amendment, we'll call it the bill, is proposed in early 2019. And things begin slowly. First, a student group is manhandled from a sit-in in March. Then the lawyers' union go on a silent strike in opposition. Before long, Hundreds of thousands take to the streets. And in June, huge mobilizations begin. And the protests really start. Act Two. What makes a protester? This is where I come into the story. I'd spent about seven months investigating communication-backed channels, Trying to find someone to go on tape about their experiences. I manage a breakthrough, a protester willing to speak for this series. He asked to go by Nathan.
1: The first time I attended the protest for the anti-extradition bill, I was sitting with all those peaceful protesters in Admiralty, Hong Kong.
0: He's in his 20s and identifies as a radical protester, one who goes right to the front face to face with police. On the night Nathan is describing, one million people filled the streets of Admiralty, the central business district of Hong Kong. As word spread that the government would not get rid of the bill, people began trying to break into the legislative council and physically stop the bill from passing the assembly. And then all of a sudden, explosions.
1: They, they fired tear gas, they threw a tear gas can into the crowd uh, In the middle of the road Like there were at least 10,000 people there And those peaceful protesters obviously they didn't have any gears It was like zombie outbreak You, you can see in the movie that everyone's running And uh, they begged the management of the shopping mall to, to open the door But they refused, so uh, everyone was shut out there And uh it was a disaster. Like everyone is so terrified.
0: Nathan was there on the exact same stretch of road almost five years before, during the umbrella movement where protesters occupied the Hong Kong CBD for 79 days, their non-violence symbolized by umbrellas. And they were fighting for elections free of Chinese interference
1: in 2014 that the police fired the first tear gas canister. And I was, I don't know why, I I don't know why, but I was at the front line at the moment because we didn't expect that the police would do that.
0: But Nathan wasn't the only person present in the early days of the protests that I've spoken to. While I was on my quest to understand protesters, I managed to get in contact with Anthony Dapperin, who has authored several essential books on the Umbrella Movement and the 2019 protests.
1: It didn't come a- as much of a shock as it did during the Umbrella Movement. In the Umbrella Movement, it was really the first time that, that tear gas had been a- deployed against uh, against the Hong Kong protesters um, you know, since the 60s. Uh, it had been used a little bit against mainly South Korean anti-WTO protesters back in 2005, but this was the first time it had been used
0: against Hong Kong protesters in sort of in a generation. And what they're fighting for, as much as it's opposing the extradition of Hong Kongers to China is to protect Hong Kong's autonomy, which is actually a more recent phenomenon than you might expect. When it was handed back from Britain to China in 1997, Hong Kong got 50 years of independent government from China, while still actually being part of China, a principle known as One Country, Two Systems. Unlike the extradition bill that posed a slow, creeping interference from China, this problem is real. They just marched towards them and showered innocent bystanders and more radical protesters alike with asphyxiating gas.
1: There wasn't any movie-like romantic moment. No, it was all about terror, horror, getting nervous, haunted by those shots, it's the sound of shots, like they fire guns. At the front line, a lot of police officers were surrounding you trying their best to arrest you. So every moment you have to think of how to, how to not get caught. It's not even, it's not even a fight. It's a, it's, it's a massacre that they were doing.
0: After the first tear gassing of 2019, protesters wanted more than just the abandonment of the extradition bill. They now had five clear demands. They still wanted the revocation of the bill, but now they also wanted the resignation of the chief executive Kerry Lamb, the release of all those arrested, and for the 12th of June to be officially deemed a protest and not a riot as recorded by police. And finally, the right to choose their own government leaders in the form of universal suffrage protesters had a a completely different strategy rather than trying to start a a long-term
1: occupation at the end of the day knowing that they'd been successful that LegCo had not been able to meet and and therefore the extradition bill had not been put to the the legislative council the protesters just packed up and caught the last MTR home and didn't try to occupy the road and that was I think the beginnings of this so-called be water philosophy that was something that informed the way last year's protests unfolded.
0: The Be Water philosophy meant simply to be fluid and agile. It was more important to leave and fight again another day. But in the end, the five demands were not met and the violence didn't stop. I asked Nathan about his experience of violence. Or are, are there any particular protests that, you could, that stand out in your mind?
1: I can remember once I was in MTL station. A lot of protesters, radical protesters were there. Somehow the police tried to walk through the MTL station, so they blocked the way. They tried to use everything inside the station to fight back to stop the police. But somehow the police stormed a round of tear gas and rubber bullet. So the whole station is was um, full of tear gas. You can't see anything ten meters outside. It's not possible because every space of the station is occupied by those tear gas.
0: He tries yelling amongst the screaming and smoke. that The last train is about to leave the station because the police are shutting it down.
1: When I went downstairs, I saw a teenager. He looked like 14 or 15 maybe and uh, I can see two police officers with guns in their head and, and they fired two shots of tear gas. One of the tear gas canister explode in front of the, the teenager, like five meters in front of me. And I saw the whole thing happen. The thing that exploded from the tear gas hit right at the face of the teenager. So that boy just immediately fell, fell down. So I went unconscious. It was the most shocking part that, that I can remember.
0: And what did the police do when the boy was hit in the face? Nothing. Keep shot, keep shooting.
1: That's what they do. Every one of us just rushed down to to get him back. But he fainted for like 15 minutes. We take the boy onto the train and the train went away. During that time, the whole train was silenced because no no one wanted to say a thing. No one wanted to. to No one no. No one knew what what to what to say because it is a very shocking moment that in front of you there was a boy got shot and go unconscious.
0: Did you get a chance to talk to him, or, or was he with his friends?
1: Um, no, he, he got no friends. He was surrounded by first aider. I can only look at him after he woke up. But the first moment that he woke up, he his face just smashed into. I mean, I mean, I can sense how painful it is. It was when he woke up at the very first moment because his face was just telling everybody how painful it, it was. And then he was sent to the hospital.
0: The story is deeply disturbing. I've pushed incredibly hard for an opinion from the other side. I tried contacting pro-government politicians, activists, police members, commissioners. Every angle I tried was a roadblock. I've used as many government press conferences and speeches in this series to bring a rounded perspective but part of that balanced inquiry is questioning the actions of protesters as well see the thing is every protester i've spoken to cites police violence as the heart of their anger it's the key to their sorrow about the mess that hong kong finds itself in and i put it to them the protesters take part in violence too i mean setting fire to MTR stations, throwing bricks and sharpened bamboo javelins, firing slingshots with rocks and lobbying Molotov cocktails. And as much as the police seemed to use force indiscriminately, it seemed inevitable to me that these methods of retaliation could affect bystanders as well. It certainly doesn't justify the police behavior, but it doesn't exonerate protesters of responsibility either. I really wanted to understand how protesters dealt with the ethics of this reality. And to do that, I would have to go deeper into their past. Act three, a terrorist or freedom fighter?
2: Fellow citizens, for more than two months, protests arising from the Fugitive Offenders Bill have continued. Our citizens, police and reporters have been injured during violent incidents. There have been chaotic scenes at the airport and MTR stations.
0: In September, Carrie Lam formally responded to the five demands in a televised address. After two months of crippling unrest in the city, she announced,
2: The government will formally withdraw the bill in order to fully allay public concerns.
0: And allay public concerns they did not. While her compromise was being beamed into the screens of Hong Kong and the world, the protest just continued. To an outsider, you might be thinking, the bill's gone. Isn't that enough? Well, I interviewed analysts and I read so many articles each time trying to find an answer that was satisfying. It seemed like the thing I was missing and what was missing from the sources I encountered was a window into the life of a person who becomes a protester. And that window, for me was a 16-year-old who we'll call Hoodie.
3: Oh, shit, I forgot to change the name. Jesus. Ah, uh, hell.
0: Yeah, if you didn't catch that, he forgot to change his name. We'd had trouble syncing up audio on a bunch of video call platforms, so it was partially my fault. It's just kind of lucky that I wasn't trying to put him in jail. Oh, yeah,
3: done. Ah, oh, fuck. Made him made a mistake there. Okay. Oh, it's okay.
0: And, and so you're saying that you were kicked out of school. What happened?
3: I joined it around June, the 9th of June, I think, before the uh, so-called tear gas buffet even happened.
0: That was the first time I heard the term tear gas buffet. For taking part in the buffet, Hoodie got kicked out of school. Word got around one person speaking to another person to another person until he got called into the student development office. Oh, and I'm sorry, the Skype audio is even worse. And so, did they call your parents in? Did, did you have to have, like, a meeting with the school and your parents about it?
3: Yeah, 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 at the end of the year. How did that go? They weren't was, exactly annoyed, they were more, like, upset and offended. Yeah, offended.
0: After we spoke for a while, I asked what kind of gear he used, and he jumped up to show me something.
3: Well, there's a lot. Wait a minute. to ah. Because I was afraid that I'm like, I need to run or something because I don't feel exactly safe in Hong Kong anymore.
0: Part of that robotic cascading sound is Hoodie heaving an army green backpack into the view of the camera. And if you couldn't make out what he was saying, he doesn't feel safe in Hong Kong anymore.
3: Uh, So I packed every single piece of my gear inside back, so uh, I got shit. It's really heavy. After the 1st of October, I am shit scared because it's the first time to fire a life round. So I got hair in the light and I bought, went and buy a ballistic helmet.
0: But he didn't just have a ballistic helmet. He also had ballistic body plates. And for those who don't know, a ballistic plate is also called a trauma plate. It's the kind of thing they use in bulletproof vests. And this is one of those points where the reality of what I was reporting on really hit home. Like, what the hell is going on? Radical protester or not, this seemed insane to me, that it would be conceived as necessary for a 16-year-old to have military-grade gear, to have a flight bag, so, in his words, he could fuck out at a second's notice. But the more I researched, the more it seemed his fear was well-founded. You just heard the live rounds, what he was talking about that made him paranoid enough to buy military armour. The bullets were shot by a Hong Kong police officer into the chest of a protester on October 1st, 2019, the official National Day, the day where they celebrate the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And when you watch the footage, filmed on a phone, you can see the officer wrestling with a protester, pull out his gun and fire. It's pretty shocking to watch. People in Hong Kong felt there was blood on the hands of the cops. Not just the shooter, but every officer who formed part of the policing institution. In their eyes, they were just the crooked enforcement of a corrupt government. The Hong Kong police commissioner, Stephen Lo, felt differently. Not just a, hmm, we made a mistake, but a justified one. He actually defended the use of live ammunition at a press conference on the same day.
4: Uh, at this moment, uh, he was arrested for assaulting police officer. We will conduct further inquiries. And then, once uh, after the inquiries, we will decide whether we will press charge or not. And lastly, today, I'm set. Our National Day is supposed to be a day to celebrate and be happy. But unfortunately, some rioters, choose to do all these, all these sorts of uh, criminal damages, arsons, woundings, assaulting police officers, and various uh, um, behaviour, which are more or less equivalent to a riot offence. Almost demonstrating to the whole world that uh, we are supposed to be proud of. Hong Kong is a safe city.
0: The irony, of course, in his sorrow, is that just hours earlier, the police used lethal force and discharged a gun into an unarmed protester's chest. An argument can be made that the officer was provoked. That said though, based on the video evidence, it would be very difficult to argue that lethal force was reasonable or proportionate to the threat. So that's the background to Hoodie's paranoia. But it wasn't just that.
3: Well, you know about the 21st of July, Taylor, do you?
0: I had completely forgotten what happened on the 21st of July. Oh, yeah. Is is that where they, they shot tear gas in the MTR station or is it a different one?
3: No 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 no. The twenty first of July one is the uh Yunlong incident.
0: So now we start talking about the Yunlong incident, which are also known as the Yunlong attacks. And Yunlong is a fifteen minute drive to the Shenzhen Bay Bridge, which takes you straight into mainland China. And the geography is important because Hoodie would usually escort his friends home after a protest. But on this night he didn't.
3: What what happens is, uh, it was the only night that I didn't ex- escort them home, and that night happened, and then she, uh, and then she, ah, fuck, and then she got beaten up, and then I was really pissed about it.
0: That is, his friend got beaten up, but it wasn't just his friend, a lot of people got beaten up that night.
3: And then... When they reach uh, Yulong station, there are no police at all. Only riots with white shirts, uh, with weapons in hand, and then start. Oh, sorry. And then start beating people. And then police were not even here.
0: It turns out police had been given tip-offs, warnings throughout the whole day of the 21st of July saying that a group of men in white shirts were gonna beat people in the Yuan Long metro station.
3: Uh, when then the white mob finally finished, we thought they were finished, and then the police came really, really late, about 40 minutes late, and then they claimed they don't have enough people.
0: So I'm sitting here listening to Hoodie, and I make a note to look into it further. And this wasn't just a few thugs, there were masses, like around 700 people, armed with wooden poles, metal poles, rattan canes, there are reportedly knives in the mix. And despite warning the police, they're so obviously absent. I mean, the police stations are closed. In videos, you can see people huddled in waiting subway carriages as men begin to hammer away indiscriminately. Journalists were beaten. Children were beaten. Women were beaten. Even a pregnant woman was confirmed to have been beaten. The entire incident meant, at worst, these were triads, and they were either mercenaries hired by the police force or the government, or they were working in unison with the police force, or the police force was so incompetent that they allowed a politically motivated attack, of which they had prior knowledge and prior warning about, to go ahead anyway. And the defences put up by Stephen Lowe, the police commissioner, really do sound flimsy and unbelievable.
3: About
4: the uh, closure of the um, uh, police stations, uh, because uh, at that time there were big groups of protesters surrounding um, the um, police station or even besieging uh, the uh, police station. So, um, at the, uh, because of the reason of safety, they had to close the gate. But they still make report to police uh, through 999 or other means. And indeed, as I've just said, we received the call and we uh, response uh, to the scene already. And only because uh, we have to redeploy manpower from other districts. That's why the time has taken a little bit longer.
0: So this just doesn't stack up. The idea that the police station should be closed for the safety of police against rioters at Yuen Long, while also saying the police had been redeployed into Hong Kong to deal with rioters doesn't make any sense. They sent police to deal with the problem that also meant this station was closed for 40 whole minutes while the people they see as rioters are getting beaten. I began to see through Hoodie's eyes and through them a window into Hong Kong's eyes, at least maybe a window into a slice of Hong Kong, the subset on the receiving end of this beating. I began to understand better why this extradition bill didn't matter anymore. The failings of the government were so immense, and those failings had inflicted such real harm. This protest of frontline radicalization was starting to click in my head. And part of the reason I've gone into such depth talking to Hoodie and talking to Nathan for you to hear was to draw out the central thematic tension of this entire conflict. Are the protesters terrorists or are they freedom fighters? Act 4. The siege. From the very beginning, protesters have been called rioters and terrorists. If you look through history, the victors of conflict usually decide who were fighting for freedom and who were bringing terror. In Hong Kong, it's still unsettled. And nowhere does this question play out more clearly than the university sieges of Hong Kong. The sieges began with the sound of black-shirted protesters harvesting bricks outside campuses around Hong Kong Island and in the New Territories. This is in November, so we've had escalating conflict for five months by now. And this is how Hoodie got involved. So Hoodie, he's at a party with his university students, alumni from his high school. They tell him to dump his gear in their dorm. They say, whatever is going to happen, it could last a long time. So a few days later, around the 9th of November, he manages to sneak onto the uni grounds. He's at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, but there are at least five other battlegrounds. And then he goes home. He's sitting at home waiting, when all of a sudden, he gets a message over telegram.
5: My friend told me he don't have enough uh, medication for his asthma, and the tear gas is just getting worse and worse because uh, at one point, because I, I don't even know how, they start shooting tear gas like over like the football field and they start and some shit start burning and there's smoke everywhere and I don't know what the hell is happening.
0: So the parents side, a guy and a girl are beginning to panic. She is what Hoodie calls a civilian or the equivalent in Cantonese because she is non-violent and doesn't really go anywhere near the front line.
3: As more and
5: more tear gas being fired into the uh, the, the university. I can start hearing their desperation. like, we're, we're, they got more uh, like anxious, anxious, and they're so uh, how you put it, nervous. Is the the ang- the type of anxious uh, emotion start turning into desperation and anger, and they they start yelling at me over the phone. It's like, we're, we're, we're like, where, where the fuck's the medication?
0: So Hoodie decides, now is the time to go. And the only way in is the number two bridge, which has been completely sealed off. So he has to climb over fences from the back of the campus to get in. He finds his friends, along with other casualties, bunkered down in the dorm rooms.
5: They're like hiding into their room, and they boarded up some of the windows too, uh, just not to let people see that they're in there. Because police, I, we don't know what the police is going to do. They, they might just come in, gun, guns blazing and start shooting at whatever that moves. I don't know. Well, I don't know what the hell they're going to do.
0: He gives them the asthma medication and tries to supply the first aiders with the medical supplies he could fit in his backpack. He leaves his friends and heads towards the sound of gunshots and explosions. The number two bridge. Meanwhile, Nathan is already at the number two bridge. They try to
1: use a Molotov or fire to, to stop the procession of uh, police.
0: But it's not just Molotovs, fire and smoke. The Chinese University is the biggest campus in Hong Kong with the most extracurricular resources.
1: So they have archery, a lot. So some of the protesters found the storeroom and get all the weapons outside.
0: There is a photo of a police officer's calf punctured from one side to the other by a black arrow no doubt more officers copped arrows to the body as well arguments began to break out between the protesters pleading to stop using this kind of live force because it would invite retaliation live ammunition bullets from police and death the panic continues over the course of four days
1: you actually can't have much sleep because it's so intense every moment. Even, they, even police they didn't do anything. But they're just standing in front of you. They have their different trucks. They have tear gas. They have speakers that uh, try to disturb you when it was midnight. So you can't actually have much sleep.
0: So the situation continues with the entry road to the university covered in bricks. They almost look like little landmines, two bricks sitting up vertically, with one brick over the top. This is to stop wayward tear gas canisters from rolling closer to the protesters' battlement position.
1: It wasn't really a fight. It's just a scene with fire, a lot of fire. So because of the fire, police could not easily get into the campus and they fire a lot of tear gas.
0: So you can imagine, when Hoodie arrives at the bridge, it's mayhem. Videos exist from inside. Some from the BBC, others from university journalists. This is what Hoodie would have heard as he made his way from the dorm to the bridge. let me unpack a few of those sounds. There's a leaf blower trying to repel tear gas clouds. There are tear gas canisters being fired. There are bricks being thrown. There are glass-bottled Molotov cocktails shattering. There are all these different projectiles hitting umbrellas, bitumen hitting people, tree trunks, skip bins on wheels. The scrape of plastic road barriers being dragged across pavement for protection by protesters. Seven-foot reinforced shields being slammed into the ground by police but who doesn't have time to take in all this information? He has to fight.
5: At one point, I tear off my t-shirt to stop like a head wound because that guy's bleeding because he took a 38 millimeter rubber round with like the black disc ones, really hard ones, right in the head. So I have to stop his bleeding with my t-shirt because I don't even have any bandages anymore.
0: He has to rip off his t-shirt to stop the bleeding because all the first aiders are out of supplies. he's used all his bandages on casualties in the dorm room as time goes by things become more desperate as molotov fires have raged for several days smoke has filled the sky for almost 72 hours what hoodie saw next changed the way i see the conflict in my head it was sort of flattened and oversimplified just young protesters against old police but there are present different stakeholders Journalists, some foreign, some local, and older protesters in their 40s, 50s and 60s. Men and women, radical protesters, and civilians. Sometimes when protesters are about to lob petrol bombs, they even hesitate because they don't want to hit anyone innocent by accident.
5: We want to retaliate, but they're in between us and when we try to throw some molotovs, they're in front of us. and. We don't want to hurt them, so sometimes we aim and they start, so suddenly runs in front of us. And some of us even got shit scared and dropped a bomb. It'll, like, dropped a petrol bomb. And. And. Uh, and. Uh, he, I remember one guy dropping his petrol bomb and it was like. It blew right next to his legs. And he was like screaming and yelling. But. Fortunately, we got some fire extinguishers that we put out. Because sometimes when I think of it, what, what, what if we don't have that fire extinguisher here? He, he, might, he might be dead.
0: And this scene is happening all the time. Like, these aren't military veterans. They're normal people in an extreme situation. Mistakes, dangerous, almost fatal mistakes are bound to happen. But they aren't alone out there. A volunteer group called Save Our Children made up mostly of older volunteers are trying to help the protesters hold the bridge. But he tried to help a man about his father's age.
5: He's definitely in pain because of the tear gas. He can't even open his eyes. It was like trying to reach for something and walk him back to the campus. And when we ran up to him, offered him some like sodium chloride solutions, they refused it and told me and some of the ones there are at the bridge, it's like save it for somebody else. He doesn't need it. And it's like at that time I was like, What the fuck, are we at war or something? Why? What, What the fuck's happening?
0: Well, the siege of the Chinese University is about to end. But if it was a war, this is just the beginning. Eventually, word gets around that the police are retreating. They've pulled their water cannons away from Chinese University of Hong Kong. It's been four full days and nights. But they aren't going home. Sieges of the other universities continue, and they have to evade capture by police. Nathan heads to City University, about 15 kilometers south in the heart of Hong Kong Island.
1: If you think you are risky, then you have to like abandon all the gears or all the things related to protests before you get in the car. And then if you do so, still claim that you are not suspicious or you don't have anything that might irritate them.
0: Hoodie meanwhile, goes to Polytechnic University. It is the fiercest battleground of the entire conflict, of the entire protest movement to date. When he arrives, it is just beginning and lasts 12 days and 12 nights. A van driver pulls up and says, if you want to go to PolyU, drop your gear and get in. So they speed off to the outskirts of the university, being stopped by successive rings of police barricades. Because he can't get into the front line, he has to help another way.
5: Trying to get more bricks, pass it through the front line, and, make some improvised weapons, sharpening bamboos, and something like that.
0: I asked him what it looked like being on the outside, looking in this time.
5: A fucking war, that's how I put it. I have never seen, like, parents picking up their kids, holding them in their arms, and running away from police. That, that's the first time I see shit like that. If, if you tell me this is Syria, I will believe you.
0: By this point, I was genuinely shocked that they're even functioning or able to stay awake. It's been at least four days, maybe five. So I asked him, When did you go home? As
5: long as I could, but at one point I know I can't take it anymore because I was in at the side of the road and I felt asleep. <laughs> the only thing that's waking me up is like the fucking sound gunshot, even though it's from far, far away, it still woke me up. I was, you know, where Nathan Road is, right? It's like a long, straight road. Because at the side there was a concrete barricade that separates the driving lanes. I lean on that and I fell asleep. And I always get woken up by like distant gunshots.
0: Eventually, after twelve days, the remaining protesters, the hardest of the frontliners, have no choice but to make a run for it. Some protesters hung improvised ropes from an overpass and slid down on motorbikes to get away. By the time we are talking about this, me and Hoodie have been talking for over an hour, which is one of our longer conversations. You can hear the exhaustion in his voice having to relive all the details.
5: Well luckily some of them rippled away and some of them escaped from the sewers.
0: Really they escaped through the sewers?
5: Yeah. Because there those two groups of people, like uh, the ones that are leading them through the sewers and the ones that are waiting for them at the sewers.
0: But even then, they weren't safe. Firefighters descended with flashlights into the sewers in an attempt to catch those trying to escape.
5: They told me that they lost directions pretty easily. And it feels like forever in there.
0: And after all this pain, was it all worth it? At least to Hoodie and to Nathan. Worth the friends arrested, comrades wounded, relationships broken, and Hong Kong's economy in recession. Act 5. Reflection.
4: Hong Kong's rule of law has been pushed to the brink of total collapse, as masked rioters recklessly escalate their violence under the false hope that they can get away with it.
0: Hope. False or not? Some protesters did manage to evacuate the universities in time to escape. But if there was hope for the future, it was certainly being extinguished. I asked Nathan the toll these sieges took on the movement.
1: I think thousands of people got caught. Half of them will be in arrest because they, they try to arrest every person that they see in the scene. So uh, half of them were actually innocent. Like they didn't do any radical thing. They didn't participate that
0: much. Regardless, arrests of less radical protesters harm the viability of the movement as a whole because their ancillary role is so important, supplying frontliners, passing gear, first aiders, forming the massive numbers required to incite change.
1: But another half would be a group of people that they actively participate in radical protests. So it actually made the community become weaker because we lost those kind of activists to handle the front line.
0: It wasn't just protesters arrested that left a sense of the gravity of what had just occurred. Police and firefighters, joined by the bomb squad, went in and recovered the remaining stockpile of explosives and gear as evidence. In a press conference, the police public relations chief superintendent, Kwok Khachun, listed the inventory
6: of seized gear. The police have seized in total night bottles of petrol bombs. 1,339 items of pressurized flammable liquid, 601 bottles of chemicals, and 573 items of offensive weapons.
0: Regardless of the side you align with, it's hard to grasp just how radicalized the situation has become. The chief superintendent went on to make two claims.
6: The police always adopt peaceful method and flexible approach to solve this crisis. We have civil tolerance for any violent or criminal act. We strong, strongly condemn the riotists for taking hostage of the university and using it as a weapon factory.
0: And hearing this, I put these claims to Nathan. So like the, the Hong Kong police commissioner came out after the sieges and said protesters were one step closer to terrorism and they called CUHK a weapon factory. What do you think about that?
1: Honestly, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't actually call that kind of things weapon because when comparing to the forces police use, they, they were just nothing. Like the police force is just like an army fighting with ancient animals, like monkeys. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was, we, it was the weapon factories. Far from
0: that. And in an attempt to unpack Nathan's anger at police a little further, I put to him the terrorist or freedom fighter binary. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there there will be people listening to to the series, and they might think that maybe the actions of protesters do seem like terrorism. What would you say to those people?
1: You know, protester was never the the first one to use force. Uh, police is always the ones who use unnecessary force. So if we talk about terrorists, Hong Kong police force would be the biggest terrorist party in Hong Kong. Protester is just protecting themselves by using limited resources to, to fight back. They have no official gears. They do not have firearms. They do not have protection. They can just scatter and uh, get resources at the moment and use them well to protect themselves.
0: While I agreed with him that their resources are ad hoc, reflexive, and in response to being out-geared and outgunned, I wondered about the tactics they used. What about things like... like Roadblocks and, and setting you know police buildings on fire and that sort of thing. Which which category does that fall into?
1: Actually, no one would be free or uh, or stupid enough to set a uh, set something on fire without any reason. If if the police didn't do what they have done, no one would ever no one would even bother to do that. So this is a consequence that police use as excessive or unnecessary force to protest to suppress freedom here in Hong Kong. This is. What they deserved.
0: So I asked him, does he see himself as a terrorist or someone fighting for freedom? And can the lines blur?
1: I wouldn't even say it was a fight back. No. It wasn't a fight. It was just they were they were just protecting themselves against firepower or guns, or baton, or pepper spray, or tear gas maybe. I don't know. But I think in terms of level of force use, protesters can never be treated as terrorists or terrorists. Instead, should be that one who has been called a
0: terrorist. The president of Polytechnic University came out calling for a peaceful solution, seeking compromise after the siege had ended.
4: Because over the last six months in Hong Kong, we've had many... Uh, you know, uh, physical confrontations, uh, some of them rather violent. But we must look at the possibility always of a peaceful solution because I believe that uh, violence cannot solve any problem. We can have different political standings, we can have different views and perspectives of issues, but we should be able to talk to each other you know, peacefully, express our views, share our views, exchange our views rationally, so that we can find the best solution for Hong Kong.
0: This is a fundamental question in revolutionary action. Where groups are in the ideological impasse, can a non-violent solution be achieved? And when is violence necessary? I spoke once more to Hoodie about the violence he suffered and what he took from the sieges as a whole.
3: I'm not sure if a lot of reporters capture that moment, but A lot of protesters actually cried when behind the front line because they feel like they let down the people inside that are trapped in the university. And it's like, I try to pull these people back from the brink and not let them repeat the path that I took before, which is almost suicide. And I wish I can help as many as I could.
0: He told me about how he was beaten so badly, he couldn't go to the front line anymore.
3: I was beaten up quite badly by one police officer. I was pulled back from the brink by some protesters, which I'm really lucky. But the cause is really high because I almost lost my left hand due to this. Because.
0: Uh, he goes on to tell me about how the riot police charged at some frontliners, and he, being small and no expert at fighting, was pulled to the ground.
3: They twist my left hand and then they put me on the ground so I still beating me when I'm on the ground. Because at that time there, it's a really, really strong feeling of not losing by anyone anymore. So people, when they see us getting pinned and pushed onto the ground, yet still getting beaten. A lot of them charge back and then flush the police out and then pull me back. And at that time, I remember I was horrified by what I saw on my left hand because a normal hand should be like this.
0: He shows me his now healed regular left hand.
3: My hand at that time was like this and then twist.
0: Now he's showing me his hand, gnarled and twisted like a deer hoof.
3: And then twist, like, terrifying. It's just, they twist it, I think, and like, it's this way and then that way, and then, I don't know, it's just, I can't even move, like, the wrist. I can't even move it.
0: He told me it was broken so badly that it took months to heal but he continued to help supply bricks with one hand from November after the sieges to the new year. I spoke to Nathan in one last call. I'd still check in over Telegram to check a fact or date, but in this call, we came to the final point. After the sieges were over, protesters arrested en masse, the resistance was bruised and severely weakened. Was it worth it?
1: So from my point of view, actually the more the government do, faster that they ignite the fire and the fire burns faster and society will wake up sooner. That's how I think. That's how I believe. If you talk about the extradition bill, it was a it was not a failure because at least we stopped that. But after the extradition bill, if we talked about justice, if we talked about democracy, talked about police brutality, it's definitely a failure because a lot of people mysteriously died. A lot of people were were arrested and sued. Some of them have already been put into jail. That's why I told you at the very beginning that all I have towards the whole protest, all the feeling I have at the front line was sadness. It's just sad that seeing some kids, younger than me a lot, have to suffer like this without successfully fighting or gaining anything. Just a ticket to the jail, it's not, it's not worthy. For all those sacrifices, Nothing we have gained, and the government is now doing even worse things to, to to further suppress freedom. So that's definitely a loss, but for long term, I don't think I can draw a conclusion right now because we don't know what will happen. Maybe another huge protest, just like what we had in 2019 would happen again in two years maybe.
0: For Hoodie, this final question brought about a different answer. Hoodie told me a quote from his father.
3: My father made a really uh, good metaphor, which is back in 2014, when all of the frontliners were still like kids, or like really young kids, like 10 to 12 years old. So what happened in 2014, the umbrella revolution, it's like a seed that has been planted into our heads. And then when it's 2019, why is there so many young people that are going to the front line against the police? Is because we know Peace is not going to work out for us. And that seed that has been planted since 2014 has been, like, fertilized with more knowledge, more maturity to, like, help the seed grow into, like, a strong belief of protecting and defending freedom. This memory will be, like, marked into our hearts for the rest of our lives. And all of us will never, ever cooperate with the CCP.
0: But the year didn't end with the sieges. And in light of the tensions in the city, the New Year's fireworks were cancelled. People, protesters, civilians, police, reporters, young and old, began mobilizing for a brand new year, 2020. And with the sky notably absent of fireworks, the New Year's countdown began. And instead, the people of Hong Kong called in the New Year to the bang and rattle of tear gas canisters. 2019 drew to a close, protests continue. A group rallied to accuse the Hong Kong police force of creating a citywide gas chamber. Demonstrations peak with up to 800,000 protesters in attendance. On New Year's Eve, crowds begin to gather and move towards Victoria Park to demonstrate for a continued fight. Nathan and Hoodie were amongst them. From the Australian Institute of International Affairs, I'm your host, Elliot Didier. This episode was written, produced, edited, and mixed by myself. Special thanks to AIIA Executive Director Alistair Roth, to Thomas Muir, and a very special thanks to the Hong Kong artist Kylan Ake for providing the stunning illustration in our thumbnail. A link to their work is in the show notes.